0: This morning, Lord willing, we will be studying Matthew chapter 13, beginning in chapter 13, verse 53, and making our way through chapter 17, verse 27. So, buckle up. If, if you haven't done so, i me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the end of Matthew chapter 13. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you should be able to find that on page 819. And we're going to be skipping around a good bit in this section. Uh, So if you're not used to looking at a Bible, when I refer to chapters and verses, the chapters are going to be the larger numbers there in the text, and the verses are going to be the smaller numbers in the text. And I'll try and refer to chapters and verses every time uh, to to help you hopefully uh, follow along. Um, The the author of the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew. He was a follower of Jesus. Uh, He was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew, he's, he's an evangelist at heart. He wants to persuade us of something. His aim, the aim and purpose of his writing is to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and King. And he wants his readers to recognize this about Jesus. He wants them to recognize that he is the promised King that the Old Testament pointed forward to and promised. And because Matthew is concerned to see his readers respond to Jesus Christ in faith, he brings the issue of Jesus' identity front and center in the passage that we're studying together this morning. At its heart, Matthew chapter 13 verses 53 through chapter 17 verse 27 uh, is concerned with the question of whether we will reject Jesus or recognize Him in faith. These two responses of rejection and recognition are are batted back and forth in these chapters. And anchored in between them is Jesus' self-revelation of his true identity, the Messiah who has come to suffer and die and be raised from the grave. So if I had to summarize what this section of God's word is about, what Matthew chapter 13 verse 53 through chapter 17 verse 27 is all about, in one sentence, I'd say Jesus is rejected, recognized, and revealed. Jesus is rejected, recognized, and revealed. And as we consider each new scene in this section, let's keep in mind the question that Matthew would have us consider. How will I respond to Jesus' self-revelation? Through Jesus' teaching, through His interaction with His disciples, through His interaction with the Pharisees, through His interaction with the crowds, Matthew would have us ask the question, will I respond to Jesus like this, like they're responding to Jesus? Will I reject Him? Or will I... Receive Him and recognize Him as Savior and Lord. This is the question that we each need to ask ourselves as we study God's Word together this morning. And there should be an outline there in the bulletin provided. Lord willing, I hope that, that will help you follow along as we work our way through the text. Let's begin our study by taking a quick look at the first occasion of rejection in our passage. Where we discover that Jesus is not welcome in Nazareth. That's His hometown. Jesus is not welcome. Welcome in Nazareth. This is the first point we're considering together. Read Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he just finished teaching. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, it's not hard to see how Jesus' hometown responds to him, is it? Through his teaching, Jesus reveals that he is the very wisdom of God incarnate. In fact, his hearers recognize that he is very wise. But they don't recognize him as they ought. He astonishes his hearers and he offends them. The essence of their questions is this. Isn't Jesus just a man like us? Or better yet, who gave him the right to make himself a teacher? Their questions reveal that they don't recognize or receive him as the Messiah. Instead, they reject him and his teaching ministry among them. Collectively, they conclude that they want nothing to do with him. And here is something that we need to see in these verses because it's going to occur again and again in these chapters, throughout the rest of these chapters. Revelation, recognition, and rejection all intersect in this passage. Jesus reveals himself, but he is not truly recognized, and so he is rejected. True, there is a a partial kind of recognition, a recognition of his wisdom But a partial recognition of the character of Jesus is not enough. It is not enough to see that Jesus was a wise teacher. It's not enough to recognize the wisdom embodied in His teaching. You must recognize Him as the wisdom of God incarnate. You must recognize Him as your Savior. And His saving work is foreshadowed at the beginning of chapter 14. So let's turn now and consider our second point. told you to be quick foreshadowing the future. Here we're looking at Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. Now these verses, they recount an event that has already happened, but Matthew places it here to signal to us that the rejection of Jesus will climax in his death. So Matthew recounts the death of John the Baptist. Herod has heard about Jesus' great works, and Herod, he's afraid. He is afraid that John the Baptist, the man who he had put to death, has come back to haunt him. Why would Herod, a powerful ruler, be afraid of a man that he put to death? What was particularly unnerving for Herod was that John the Baptist had called Herod out on his sin, his sexual immorality. John knew that this wasn't a matter of personal differences and preferences, but of God's law. And this was a matter that Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16, Leviticus 18, verse 16, that addressed directly. Herod's fear emerges in another way, too. Though he wanted to put John to death, he feared the people because they believed him to be a prophet. That word prophet there in verse 5 is Matthew's signal to us as to how the last scene in Jesus' hometown connects with this one. Jesus and John are both prophets. Jesus was rejected, and so was John. John. On his birthday, Matthew tells us Herod made a rash vow to give the daughter of Herodias anything she wanted. Herodias held a grudge against John. And so this daughter of hers asked for John's head. Take a look at verses 9 and 10 there, chapter 14. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. For fear of what men might think of him, he went back on his word and did the wrong thing instead of the right thing. Instead of doing what was honorable before the Lord, Herod has John executed. Now, why is Matthew spending such a significant amount of time focusing on Herod and John the Baptist when this is a gospel about Jesus? Well, the entire purpose of John's ministry was to point to Jesus. And with John's death, Matthew signaled the final way in which John pointed to Jesus. He was foreshadowing something that would happen in the future. Before a crowd of men, Herod sentenced to death John, because he was afraid of what they might think of him. Later, before a crowd of crying people, Pilate would sentence Jesus to death, because he was afraid. Both men did what they thought was best for their self-image rather than was morally right before the Lord. They feared man more than they feared God. John the Baptist was rejected, which foreshadowed the future and Jesus' final rejection. And let's all be sure to notice something here. Though this was all part of God's comprehensive plan of redemption, notice the destruction that the fear of man leaves in its wake. It cost a man his life. Let's pray that God would cause us to fear him above all else, to fear him when we're called to give an account to our employers. Children, youth, pray that the Lord would cause you to fear him when you're tempted to shield the truth or to to go along with your plans, with, with your friends that they made that would dishonor God. Brothers and sisters, pray. That God would cause us to fear Him and we are called to speak boldly against unrighteousness and sin. John did not fear man who could kill his body. Instead, he feared God. And I am certain that John does not regret it. And I pray that the Lord would give us the grace to do the same. Consider for a moment Jesus' reaction to the news of John's death. There in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Read Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But the crowds heard it and they followed him on foot from the towns. Jesus, he he attempted to withdraw to a desolate place, but the crowds would not let him be alone. Jesus knew what John's death meant. He knew what lay ahead for him. And no doubt he wanted to be alone with his thoughts, but he could not. The crowds followed him on foot from the towns. The Savior, he was not indifferent to the crowds. He did not reject them. Instead, he received them and had compassion on them and healed their sick. And it is at this point in Matthew's narrative where a cycle of revelation begins, which will be repeated... In Matthew chapter 15, this is the third point that we want to consider together. Repeated revelation. Read Matthew chapter 14, verses 14 to 21 with me. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he he looked up to the heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. I'd love to, but we really cannot spend a whole lot of time here on these repeated revelations. What what I want you to really see is quite simple. Jesus repeats his ministry twice. You might be able to catch a glimpse of that through that box there provided on the outline, uh, reflecting on the, the structure of the passage as a whole. With some, with some uh, minor differences, Jesus basically runs parallel healing and feeding ministries in chapters 14 and 15. In chapter 14, He heals many and then He feeds 5,000 people. In chapter 15, He heals many and then He feeds 4,000 people. One of the key differences between the two, uh, the first cycle and the second cycle, is the first cycle occurs in a largely Jewish region. And the second cycle occurs in a largely Gentile region. In other words, Jesus is the Lord and Savior of Jews and Gentiles. Now, while in one sense, Jesus performs these miracles for the sake of the hurting and the hungry. In another sense, Jesus really performs these miracles for his disciples. He wants them to understand, see and recognize that he is the Lord of creation. And you would think that the disciples would get it, especially at the feeding of the four thousand, kind of the second time through. They're there with a bunch of hungry people, and they turn to Jesus, saying, "What should we do?" And Jesus says the exact same thing that He said to them, the last feeding: "You feed them." And why didn't they just ask Jesus, "Jesus, will you just feed these people?" They didn't because they didn't yet recognize who He truly was—the Lord of creation. Jesus asks them in Matthew chapter 15, verse 34, how many loaves do you have? And with that question, you know, they should have recognized, remembered the previous occasion where Jesus fed the crowd with just a few loaves. This time at the feeding of the 4,000, they've got seven. They're they're kind of better off than they were the last time there was a large crowd before them. The last time they only had five loaves. Now they've got seven. And once again, Jesus, He performs this great miracle. Everyone eats and everyone is satisfied. Now, let's be honest. We're tempted to kind of be a bit hard on the disciples, aren't we? We're we're tempted to think, come on, guys, seriously. You've been here before. Jesus is right there with you. Call out to Him. Ask Him to do a mighty work. Brothers and sisters, how often have we been like the disciples? How often have we found ourselves in a similar place of difficulty and failed to remember how the Lord was faithful to walk with us through it? How many times, how many valleys have we been through that we failed to remember that the Lord was with us in the last valley too? You know, you may look back on those valleys as places where your weakness or your weak faith was exposed But don't forget that they were also places where the Lord's strength was revealed. If you find yourself in a valley, again, because we inevitably will, remember that the Lord was with you in the last one too. Remember what He has done before, He can do again. We see that here in these miracles. Now. Sandwiched between these two cycles of nearly identical ministry to Jews and Gentiles are two different responses toward Jesus. On the one hand, you have the Jewish Pharisees who rejected Jesus. And on the other hand, you have a Canaanite woman, a Gentile, who recognizes him in faith. So let's turn now and look at our next point, at those different dispositions toward Jesus. And as we do, take a look at Matthew chapter 15. And let's read verses 1 to 9. Let me read verses 1 to 9 of Matthew chapter 15. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. Now, it's worth noting that this conversation takes place in Gennesaret. Jesus was recognized and revered there. The scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew tells us, have come looking for Jesus. The Pharisees have already passed their sentence upon Jesus. Matthew told us in chapter 12 verse 14, chapter 12, verse 14, that the Pharisees, that they have conspired against Jesus on how to destroy Him. They inform Jesus that His disciples, they've been breaking the traditions of the elders. Why are they asking Jesus about His disciples? Well, at one level, the Pharisees thought that one's external cleanliness was related to his spiritual cleanliness or holiness before the Lord. That's why they they would make sure uh, to wash their hands and all sorts of other things as well. The Pharisees, they have come from Jerusalem. And they see that Jesus' disciples do not wash their hands before they eat. To them, this looks like the disciples, and more importantly, Jesus, is not concerned with holiness. And so they ask Jesus about this. And in reality, the Pharisees' question about Jesus' disciples is a thinly veiled attack on Jesus. If the Pharisees truly recognized Jesus, then they would not have asked him about the words of men, but about the word of God. That is exactly how Jesus responds, isn't it? The Pharisees turn to the traditions, the words of men, but Jesus turns to the word of God. He quotes the law, Moses, and the prophet Isaiah to them. And in doing so, he shows them how they have prized the words of men over the word of God and how their hearts were actually very far from God. The Pharisees' heart disposition toward Jesus is one of rejection. And Jesus expands His teaching on the heart before the crowd there in verses 10 to 20 of Matthew chapter 15. Those standing before Him, hearing Him in the crowd, need to reflect on their own hearts. Consider verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, uh, and, And He called the people to Him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Jesus' point here in this section, uh, in these verses and the verses that follow, is that what makes us unclean before the Lord is our own hearts. Our own hearts are unclean. That's why all of these evils and sins tumble out of us. And to prove it, Jesus offers a devastating list there in verse 19 of what comes out of our hearts and lives. And and who can escape this list? Who is free from deceit? Who's free from envy? Who is free from pride? We're, We're pinned in one place or another by Jesus. We are radically unclean. And in the end, you know what? The Pharisees, they were actually right about one thing. They were right that they and we need to be clean before God. But washing our hands, washing various parts of our lives, just won't do it. This is part of the reason that Jesus would warn the crowd and his disciples about the Pharisees again in chapter 16, in verses 1 to 12. Not only is it clear that no sign would really satisfy the Pharisees so that they might recognize Jesus. But they will also lead people astray by not leading them to Jesus for cleansing. Have you noticed that those who struggle with legalism, and by the way, that's all of us at one point or another, those who struggle with legalism usually have their finger on something that is wrong. They may overstate their case, But their real error is not in calling us to come to Jesus for cleansing. They call us to come to the law without the Lord. Their real error is in calling us to get our lives cleaned up before coming to God. When only God can really clean up our lives. Only Jesus can make us clean from the evil within our hearts. Rather than rejecting Jesus, we need to run to Him with humble persistent and desperate faith and the very next scene shows us this contrasted against the scene of the Pharisees rejection of Jesus contrasted against hearts that were void of faith in Matthew chapter 15 verses 21 to 28 we meet a Gentile woman we meet a Gentile woman who is full of faith what the Pharisees refused to recognize in Jesus she sees with perfect clarity. When Matthew notes in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 15 that Jesus withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon, he's telling us that Jesus has crossed the ancient traditional borders of Israel and entered into Gentile territory. This territory is inhabited by outsiders, those who are not presently children of the covenant household of God. A woman whose daughter was severely oppressed by a demon. She found him. She's heard of Jesus and she believes that he has the power to heal her daughter. She begged him and fell at his feet. As any mother would, she cried out to him, Lord, help me. And Jesus' reply to this woman's plea seems cold at first, doesn't it? But upon closer examination, I think that we'll see that there's actually great hope in this reply. Jesus uses a metaphor to explain to this woman the priorities of his current ministry. He uses the common setting of a household. Jesus tells us the woman he, tells the woman he must first feed the children. Jesus is telling this woman that he must first minister to the people of Israel until they've had all that they want. He can't take their food and give it to the dogs. Given Given what we know from his reception in his hometown and his interaction with the Pharisees, they may have already had their fill. Now, Jesus' reply, I think, proves that Matthew is an accurate historian. For Jesus' words are not exactly flattering, are they? Uh, Jesus calls this woman a dog. Now, it's not the traditional insult that Israelites would use of Gentiles as a mangy kind of mutt. Jesus uses the, the term of kind of a lap dog, a household pet. But Jesus, He explains to her that, that since he, he is first to feed the children of Israel, it's not right to take their food and, and give it to the dogs. And in this metaphor, as I said, Jesus refers to this woman and the Gentiles as dogs. And I don't think Jesus means this to be an insult. Rather, in Jesus' reply, we see his current missional priorities, that he would preach to the Jews first. However, in Jesus' words, we also see a promise of inclusion. There are dogs in the master's house. Jesus said that he couldn't take the children's food and give it to the dogs. But this, from Jesus, is a test of the woman's faith. And she passes it with flying colors. She sees Jesus' reference to dogs in the household as a ray of hope, a promise that she is going to cling to, that she, a dog, can be in God's household. And so she replies, yes, Lord. It's an amazing reply in and of itself, isn't it? She is willing to submit to the Father's priorities for the Son's mission to go to the Jews first, It's a remarkable display of faith in and of itself. But what she says next is even more astounding. In chapter 15, verse 27, she says, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She believes that even Jesus' current ministry is so gracious, so bountiful that there will certainly be crumbs for her and her daughter. As as one commentator said, When Jesus opens the door crack for the dogs, she pushes her way in. She will beg like a dog and even eat like a dog. But the master of the house, by the end of this story, is very willing to accept her. A Canaanite woman, a daughter of Abraham, because of her faith. Jesus recognizes her amazing, true, and persistent faith. And in light of her faithful reply, Jesus He heals her daughter from a distance. He casts out a demon from a distance. We've seen Jesus heal before. We've seen him do this before as well in other Gospels. This miracle shows us that Jesus' divine power is not limited by space. The Lord of creation can work all over the creation. Her daughter was healed instantly. You know, this conversation miracle It points forward to the day when the Gentiles would no longer be those who wait under the table for crumbs, but co-heirs of gospel blessings. In fact, it has been God's amazing plan all along. From the time of Abraham, God made clear that the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, Paul tells us, would be a blessing not just to the Jews, but to all who believe, to the nations. And the Apostle Paul tells us that those who put their faith in Jesus are children of Abraham, children who are welcome at the Master's table. The question is will we recognize Jesus in faith, just like this woman did? Will we humble ourselves and confess our desperate need of Him? Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be cleansed from our sins, we need to be healed. God, He made us to love Him and honor Him and serve Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And yet each one of us has rebelled against Him, choosing to live our own way instead of His. And this is what the Bible calls sin, rejecting God in His way, instead depending upon our own strength for cleansing. The Pharisees had come up with their own way of being cleansed. When you think about it, They didn't really see their need for God like that Canaanite woman did. Do you see that your sins have driven a wedge between you and God? Do do you see that because of your sin against the eternal God, you are in danger of facing eternal punishment for them? Friend, do you see the good news of Matthew's gospel too? Jesus can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus, He came to live the perfect life, the life that you and I have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He never sinned. He was never unclean before God, which is why He would go to the cross and die for sinners like you and me, sinners whose lives are soiled, soiled and stained. He shed His blood so that we might be washed whiter than snow. More than this, he went to the cross so that we might receive his clean, righteous life and be accepted in God's sight. So that when God looks upon us, he sees his son. Three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in his sight. And now Jesus calls out to each one of us, to turn to Him, to come to Him for cleansing, to be made new. He calls us to turn from our sins and to place our faith in Him, believing that He lived and died and was raised for us so that we might be welcome at the Master's table. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't turned from your sins and placed your faith in Him, friend, I want to urge you to consider This good news, that Jesus came for sinners like you and me. He gave His life up. I want to encourage you to think more about this. So talk with your friend or family member. Come and find me at the door after the service. There's nothing more important you can think about this morning. This good news, that Jesus came to make us whiter than snow. Well, after considering these these differing dispositions to Jesus, these different responses and certainly the Canaanite woman's recognition of Jesus. Let's now turn and consider Peter and the disciples' recognition of Jesus. And when we think about Peter and the disciples' recognition of Jesus, what we see in these chapters, we see confusion. We see a clear confession. And we see a call to crossbearing. Confusion, confession, and cross-bearing. Now in, in this section, Jesus, he's going to once again reveal his true character and mission. We'll also see the disciples recognize Jesus, but only partially. They see, but they don't see with perfect clarity. Consider the scene in Matthew chapter 14. So flip back to Matthew chapter 14 and look at verses 22 to 32. Notice how the disciples don't recognize Jesus, but how they also kind of do. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. And took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So you see, when Jesus passes in front of the disciples there on the sea, it's clear that they don't recognize him. They think he's a ghost, they're struck with fear. It's strange that they don't recognize Jesus. They've been with Him for months, maybe even years. And this experience isn't that foreign to them. They've been with Him on this same lake with a storm raging about them. And when Jesus sees their fear, He comforts and consoles them. He tells them to take courage and to not be afraid. Those two phrases are basically communicating the same thing. But what stands between them is significant. The reason the disciples can take courage and rid themselves of fear is because Jesus has arrived. He says, it is I. And when he utters those words, he utters words that are used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to communicate that Yahweh is speaking. Did did his disciples pick up on that? Did they hear Jesus say, it is the I am? That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Did they, did they hear him say that? Did they recognize that? Well, at first it seems as if Peter recognized Jesus as the sovereign Lord in the flesh, the I am in the flesh. But after Jesus saves Peter from sinking, he essentially calls him a man of little faith. It's kind of amazing when you think about it, isn't it? I just love this scene. It makes me laugh every time I read it. Perhaps I shouldn't, but I do. Anyways, well, you think about it. He calls him a man of little faith, but he had so much faith to step out onto the water in the first place. And yet he's a man of little faith. What about those in the boat? Do they recognize Jesus? After all, when Peter and Jesus got into the boat, the winds and the waves ceased. The sailors, they they worshiped Jesus saying, truly you are the Son of God. Is Is this budding faith? One would hope. There's some clarity as to who Jesus is, but there's still a great deal of confusion. Flip over now to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to start reading there in verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now this is, of course, an incredibly famous and important scene. Jesus asks his disciples, who people say the Son of Man is, and then he turns and he asks the disciples the question, But who do you say I am? Alright guys, it's your turn. Who do you say I am? That is, of course, the question that each one, of our, each one of us should be asking ourselves. Who is Jesus? Well, Peter, he steps forward on behalf of the disciples and gives really the perfect reply, doesn't he? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter says, you are God's promised Messiah, the anointed one who God would send to do His will and save His people. You are God's beloved Son. You have the highest and closest relationship with God. In verse 16, Peter seems to recognize who Jesus really is and what he's come to do, doesn't he? Jesus blesses him for this recognition. And he reminds them that this insight could only come through divine revelation from the Father. As we've already learned in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Matthew 11, verse 25, it is the Father who reveals divine truth to his children. Jesus doesn't stop at that great blessing bestowed upon Peter. He moves from speaking of blessing to speaking of a building project. We could spend hours sorting through the weeds of this controversial text, I'm sure with much benefit, uh, and I'd be happy to discuss it with you at length uh, after the service at the door. Um, But let me just go ahead and give you the bottom line that I, I read in this text. And here I'm following... Uh, Edmund Clowney and Jonathan Lehman in their understanding of this text. It's a common understanding, evangelical Protestant understanding of the text. Jesus builds his church upon Peter and his confession. Jesus builds his church upon Peter and his confession. As Edmund Clowney says, the confession cannot be separated from Peter. Neither can Peter be separated from his confession. Or as Lehman puts it, the ambassador doesn't travel without the king's edict and the edict doesn't travel without the king's ambassador. Jesus builds his church upon the confession and the confessor. Jesus builds his church upon the confession and the confessor. And when we read the book of Acts, we see that Jesus begun his building project on Peter's confessional preaching. Moreover, if Peter cannot be separated from his confession, then neither can Peter be separated from the twelve disciples remember jesus asks the disciples as a whole the question but who do you say i am and peter steps forward on their behalf essentially as their spokesman it's no surprise that by verse 20 jesus is speaking to all of his disciples again what is more is that the apostle paul points out that in ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 that peter he's not the only foundation stone of the church no, the church or the household of God is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus promises to build his church upon the confessor and his confession, upon Peter and upon the apostolic band Those 11 men with him who would share in his confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus also promises that since he is the builder of the church, the powers of hell shall not prevail against it. So Peter and his fellow disciples must finally get it, right? Finally, they rightly recognize who Jesus is, right? If they do, why does Jesus then plead for secrecy there in verse 20? Jesus understands that his disciples may recognize that he is the Messiah, but they don't yet recognize what kind of Messiah he would be. And this becomes clear in chapter 16, verse 22. Peter, perhaps once again on behalf of the disciples, pulls Jesus aside. I love it that Peter pulls Jesus aside. Let me just have a word with you real quick. Okay, let's get a few things squared away. He pulls Jesus aside and he says, Look, you need to stop all this talk about death. Okay, this is not not okay. It's not going to happen. You're God's Messiah. You're God's Messiah. It's not going to happen to you. Peter and the disciples recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but they don't really recognize what kind of Messiah he must be. He must be one who suffers and dies for the sins of his people. He must be one who is raised from the grave in victory over sin and death. Not only must Jesus be the kind of Messiah who... Would be crucified on a cross, but his disciples must recognize that in order to be truly his followers, they will have to follow in his path of suffering. This is what Jesus communicates in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 28. Those who truly recognize Jesus also recognize that their path is one of suffering and cross bearing too. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. We die to the passions of our flesh. We die to the pursuit of worldly prominence. We put to death those things which would lead us away from walking in the path of Christ our Savior, the one who suffered and died for us. Not only this, but Jesus' disciples also recognize that such suffering and cross-bearing is worth it Brothers and sisters, as you follow, follow Jesus, do not be afraid of what you might lose, but look forward to what you will gain. Those who indulge their selfish desires may gain the world, but they will lose their souls. Their lives and pursuits will mark them out as those who have surrendered to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus makes clear here that there is nothing worth gaining in this world if it means being eternally separated from Him in the next. Yes, there is a great cost to following Jesus, but there is also a great reward for those who deny their sinful pleasures, those who repent and joyfully take up the way of Christ, they will be saved. They will not forfeit their souls. They will not be forsaken on the last day. Instead, when Jesus comes in His Father's glory with His holy angels... He will bid you to come into his kingdom. You know, Jesus, he has begun to talk a lot about death. He has revealed to his disciples that he must die. He has taught them that this is what the Old Testament Scriptures said must take place. He has revealed to them that they must put to death their their flesh, take up their cross, and follow him. And all of this news could lead the disciples to worry about their own lives. And so in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus says this to them in Matthew 16, 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Some of those gathered around Jesus, listening to His teaching, would not die before they saw the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus meant this as an encouragement to His listeners. He wanted to to encourage them to take up the way of the Messiah, cross-bearing, with the hope that the power of the kingdom would soon arrive. Matthew takes this statement by Jesus and connects it to a display of the power of the kingdom in Jesus' transfiguration. It is in Jesus' transfiguration that the Father clearly conveys His own recognition of Jesus. What are we to think about Jesus? Well, God the Father reveals it to us. So let's turn now and consider that. The favor of the Father and the faithlessness of the disciples. Another contrast. The favor of the Father and the faithlessness of the disciples. Read Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 9 with me. Matthew 17, verses 1 to 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Well, the, the, the sum standing here of the previous chapter, is right there at the end of chapter 16, seems to have been referring to Peter, James, and John. Matthew tells us that Jesus was transfigured before them. And what that seems to mean is that Peter, James, and John caught a glimpse of the glory that Christ would be clothed with at His second coming. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, it spoke clearly of Christ's second coming, and here these three disciples are given a glimpse of what it would look like for the kingdom of God to come in power. What were Moses and Elijah doing there? Perhaps they stood as a testimony to Jesus, reminding the disciples that the law and the prophets pointed toward Christ. Here is a revelation of Jesus. What happens next? Peter, he opens his big big, big mouth and the Father tells him to close it. Uh, Peter, he's terrified with what's going on, so much so that he recommends building three tabernacles. Jesus is attempting to honor Jesus and Elijah and Moses. With his recommendation but peter doesn't see is that moses and elijah are not on the same plane as jesus previously peter has said that jesus was the son of the living god but does he recognize what this means a cloud in envelops them on the mountain just as a cloud enveloped moses on the mountain when god revealed the law to the people of israel now on this mountain god the father reveals his son he conveys to the disciples how he sees Jesus and how we are to see him in verse 5 the father reiterates what he said at the very beginning of Jesus ministry at Jesus baptism the father also communicated that Jesus was his son whom he loved Jesus is not just some other prophet he's not John the Baptist he's not Elijah Jesus is the beloved son of God the son whom he has loved from all eternity According to the Father, what this means is that he is to be listened to. No longer are the disciples to put forward their own ideas about what the Messiah's mission should look like, such as Peter's suggestion to avoid the cross. Rather, they are to be committed to listening and learning from Jesus as to what his mission would be. As they follow Jesus down the mountain, they ask him a question about Elijah And notice what Matthew records there in chapter 17, verse 13. Matthew says that the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Well, they understand what Jesus was saying about John the Baptist, but do they understand what he was saying about himself there in verse 12? Did you notice what Jesus said about himself in verse 12 at the end? So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Curious that Matthew leads out the disciples understood that. Were they listening to what God said? Were they listening to Jesus? Do they fully and finally recognize Jesus? Well, given the next scene, it seems unlikely that they really, truly, and fully recognize Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 20, the disciples try to heal a boy with epilepsy, but they're unsuccessful. Jesus seems almost exasperated in verse 17 when he identifies the faithlessness of his disciples. His disciples even ask, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus responds in verse 20, because of your little faith. Their little faith is revealed once more in verse 23, when they are distressed upon hearing that Jesus Christ must be delivered into the hands of men and be killed. Stop for a minute and think about all that has transpired in these chapters and just in these chapters. Jesus has displayed his divine wisdom in his teaching. He's healed many sick. He's fed 5,000, walked on water, fed 4,000 more. He's saved Peter from drowning. He's healed a demon-possessed girl from a distance with a word. He healed some more. He was transfigured to display the coming glory of his kingdom. And once again, he healed an epileptic boy with a demon. When we consider all of this, we, we might be tempted to look down on the disciples again. But really, if we were in their shoes... I think that we would struggle to grasp what is really going on. The slowness of the disciples reveals something else about Jesus Christ. That's that he's patient with us and our slowness. This is what I think we see in the very last scene. And admittedly, it's a strange scene about fishing tackle and taxes. The last scene that we're going to look at together. uh, and, And it's where we're going to conclude too. So, read, as we do, read Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. When they came to Capernaum, the the collector of the half shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. It's an amazing, amazing miracle, isn't it? The tax collector wants to know what every tax collector wants to know. Is this guy going to pay the tax? It's a polite request for Jesus to pay his taxes. Think of it like those daily emails from TurboTax reminding you to sign in and just finish filing your taxes. Uh, This particular tax was collected in order to support the ministry of the priests. So it was an important matter for the Jewish people. Through a parable, Jesus teaches Peter that they're actually not obligated to pay the tax. That is, they were free from it. The great high priest, Jesus Christ, was in the midst of carrying out his priestly ministry. Through his once-for-all sacrificial death and resurrection, he would fulfill the office of a priest. Through Jesus' priestly work, he would bring to an end the need for priests, the temple, and the sacrificial system, as the book of Hebrews teaches us. Jesus knows this. And yet on this occasion, he does not wish to offend the powers that be. He had already caused offense in his hometown, the very beginning of our passage. But now, as he ever more consciously looks ahead to his cross work, he wishes to refrain from causing offense until his hour has come. Here we see Jesus, he is fully in control of his fate. He will die when he decides to lay his life down. So, he tells Peter to grab some fishing tackle and to go fishing in order to pay the tax. Jesus promises that a miracle will happen. first fish that he catches will have a coin in it, which will allow Peter to pay the tax for both of them. If you are planning on paying your taxes this year are fishing, I'd recommend another strategy. Um, and, and I want us to see that this is a, a unique miracle that Jesus performed. And, and it seems to be especially for the encouragement of Peter and his faith. Peter needed this encouragement too the one who sank in the sea for lack of faith. Peter, the one who called into question Jesus plans to go to the cross. Peter, the one who was faithless and unable to heal a boy, sorely oppressed by a demon. Too often, like Peter, we have failed to recognize Jesus and His great power, even though He has made His power and faithfulness known to us over and over and over again. After all of Peter's failures, Jesus patiently reassures Peter that he is a son in the kingdom. And he performs this miracle so that the two of them can pay a tax. Jesus wasn't done with Peter. For now he would send him fishing for fish. But soon he would send him fishing for men. Being rightly aided by the right confession of Jesus Christ, the son of of the living God. Jesus used Peter in spite of all of his failures to truly recognize Him. And in His grace, patience, and loving kindness, He will do the same with us too, His sons and daughters. Let's pray together.